Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment. I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, an academic orthopedic surgeon at Louisiana State University, where our department mascot is an alligator submitting data to the AJRR. I have no conflicts of interest with any of the authors of these studies or any devices that may be discussed. And I'm Lenny Buller. I work at Indian University, where until recently, the only registry I've participated in was a Bed Bath & Beyond wedding registry. I also have no conflicts of interest with these studies or any of the devices discussed. I'm Mark Mildred. I'm in private practice at the Slocum Center for Orthopedics in Eugene, Oregon. I'm currently letting the computer tell me what to do for this podcast without double checking it, just like I do for all my robotic knees. I also have no conflicts of interest with the authors of these studies or the devices discussed. And I'm Chad Kruger. I'm an orthopedic surgeon at the Rothman Institute here in Philadelphia. And I'd personally like to thank everyone who got Lenny skin cream off of his wedding registry. You look great, Lenny. We'll do this in video one day, buddy. Thanks, Chad. So tonight, our special guest is Dr. Brian Springer. In addition to running a busy arthroplasty practice, he's the fellowship director at Ortho Carolinas and the medical director and co-founder of Operation Walk Carolinas. He's the second vice president of AUKUS and a past president of the Musculoskeletal Infection Society. He's also the chair of the American Joint Replacement Registry, which under his leadership recently surpassed 2 million procedures, making it the largest registry in the world. Registry science is something we know little about. So we wanted to bring him on to learn a little bit more and hear about the opportunities of how to get involved. Great, thanks Lenny and Chad, Mark and Anna. I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to spend an hour with you guys tonight on this podcast. I am most disappointed that I no longer qualify to be a member of the Young Arthroplasty Group, probably by several years. So my wife reminded me of that earlier when I told her what I had to do tonight. Oh, now they're bringing some old guy back to talk to the young guys. Your so. hair qualifies still. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. I appreciate that. So it's great to be here. I'm really excited to join you guys and to speak to the members of the YAG group, I think. We'll talk a little bit later about some of the things we're doing to hopefully get some YAG involvement in AJR because uh, I really think that you guys are the future leaders of arthroplasty. And hopefully a lot of that is going to be driven by the American Joint Replacement Registry. I've been fortunate enough to be involved with the American Joint Replacement Registry now for probably about eight years. As you know, it really started in 2010. And the first, it was kind of the vision of Bill Maloney, Dan Barry, and the thought process of, wow, this is kind of ridiculous. We're one of the largest industrialized countries in the world, and we have no way of keeping track of our data that we do from a national registry perspective. And it had tried several times to get off the ground and failed for various different reasons. And it was really kind of the founding father, so to speak, that had the know-it-all and the fortuitousness to get it off the ground and get it through many different hurdles to bring it really to where it is today, which procedurally, as you mentioned, Lenny, is by pure number of procedures is now the largest procedural registry in the world with now surpassed over 2 million hip and knee arthroplasty procedures. I think this is going to be a really powerful tool. I think it already is a very powerful tool. If you look at it nationally, currently we capture about just over 40% of all the arthroplasties done in the US. But if you, if you go back even five years ago, that was 
And so it's continuing to grow significantly. And there's a tremendous amount of interest in hospitals and practices joining the American Joint Replacement Registry for, for a lot of different reasons. I still think the fundamental premise of a registry is for patient and surgeon protection to serve as an early warning signal for failures in arthroplasty that you may not necessarily be able to detect at single centers or when the data is disjointed or data that's only coming from industry. And I think that's that still is at the core of the fundamental aspect of, of what a registry should serve is joint surveillance and, and patient safety. And then it really becomes so much more with that, with the ability to do research, like some of the studies that we're going to produce tonight, you know, being able to now capture patient reported outcome measures in large quantity and looking honestly at practice patterns across the United States and representative data, right? So oftentimes, you know, we may publish a paper at Ortho Carolina or chat a paper at Rothman. And yes, it's very important and it's very meaningful, but it also comes from a, a relatively microcosm of what goes on in arthroplasty throughout the country. And one of the benefits of the registry is it really does represent, I think, what is going on across the country, private practices, academic centers, small hospitals, large hospitals, things along those lines. So we're pretty excited about the data that we have. And I, I would still argue that we are in our infancy in comparison to maybe some of the other more mature international registries, NJR, Australia, New Zealand, things along those lines. But we've got a tremendous amount of support with the official registry of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. And then hopefully again, moving forward through the young arthroplasty group, as I mentioned before, what we've realized is that the key to success of making it work at a site is having a surgeon physician champion for the registry. Someone who's willing to kind of put it on their back, take it to administration and make them understand what the values of reporting to a registry are. So for the hospitals, there's a lot of what we call data reuse opportunities. So for example, hospitals want to be part of the joint commission, right? And have a joint commission seal of approval for arthroplasty. Well, in 2021, in order to get that seal of approval, you have to report your data to the American Joint Replacement Registry. Right. So that's a big selling point for a hospital. And there's a lot of other opportunities like that that I think are unique to this registry. Say, for example, to one of the private payers, if you report your data to AJR, they consider that to be a quality metric and they will waive your prior authorization for procedures. And also, if you're involved in bundled payments or MIPS, you can use AJR as a vehicle to be able to report your data to CMS. So there's a lot of opportunities that maybe people don't realize within the registry that are benefits for hospitals and practices to join that go well beyond just research. I really appreciate it because it's sort of like, you know how Dan Barry does the, what are we all doing at AUKUS? Yes. The practice like norms, right? Steroid. Yes. Uh, and so it's, it's an interesting like benchmark to me to know, okay, am I doing what everyone else is doing? Am I being weird in what I'm doing? And it, it's really helpful from that standpoint. The other thing about the report, and this is not like an important part, but it's just like visually stunning. If you yes. look at it, like they do a fantastic job with colors, highlighting the important parts. It doesn't read like a science paper. It was actually really, really fun to read. So I enjoyed that part of it. Yeah. You know, the editors and, and you guys know James Brown and, you know, he's, he's been the editor of the annual report and the supplement that's come out the last couple of years. And kudos to them and the team for making it just a, a very visually appealing type of, it's not just sitting down and having to read just page after page of just 
yeah. words, right? You can flip to it easily and the graphics kind of pop out at you to be able to look at things you know, very easily. The first paper we're going to talk about is perioperative periprosthetic femur <laughs> fractures are strongly correlated with fixation method. An analysis from the American Joint Replacement Registry, Journal of Arthroplasty 2019 from the July edition. In this study, the authors evaluated the AJRR between 2012 and 2017 to determine whether a relationship exists between femoral stem fixation and the periprosthetic fracture requiring early revision defined as revision within three months of the index procedure. These were linked procedures. The authors identified over 10,000 of these with 6% of these early revisions due to uh, periprosthetic femur fractures. And among those, 95% were cementless fixation in the femoral components. In a logistic regression analysis, cementless fixation was significantly associated with subsequent revision for periprosthetic fracture, although this didn't quite reach statistical significance. And my only comment is if we got the Exeter Hip Society in England to you know, somehow participate, we'd get power instantly. They also demonstrated that females and patients over the age of 70 were at a higher risk. Interestingly, during these study dates, the percentage of all elective primary total hips with cemented femoral fixation increased from 4.1% to 5.3%. So the strength of the study, it did show a correlation between cemented femoral fixation and periprosthetic fracture, as well as female, and then did show some correlation with age. I thought there were some limitations to the study. Linked revisions may not be truly linked if one was done at one hospital not reporting. So we may have lost some of these patients in that. It didn't really address some of the other factors that predispose patients to periprosthetic femur fractures, including stem geometry. Stuff like that would be maybe nice to know. Do I need to change my implant type from maybe a bladed to some other stem if I'm going to go with a press fit for maybe a femoral neck fracture? You can just change it to a cemented stem, Mark. You don't have to worry about it. Well, let's get to that because that is one of the take-home points. And that's, I think, the take-home point that I would get to is... Cement your hemis, people. Don't be afraid of the cement. And, you know, we can kind of talk about that, but I definitely a correlation between uncemented femur fixation and periprosthetic fracture. So yeah. I guess questions for you, Dr. Springer, what are your indications for cement on both a femoral neck fracture as well as maybe a primary? Yeah, it's a great question. I appreciate your review of the article. And this is one of the earlier studies that came out of AJR before we were able to 100% directly link all of our cases to the Medicare database, which we can do now. So the point that you mentioned, Mark, is exactly right. There is the potential for, and we'll bring this up in some of the other papers, what we call this migration issue, which is a patient that has the total hip done in a hospital that reports to AJR, has a revision and infection periprosthetic fracture, has that revised at a non-reporting AJR hospital, right? That patient would be missed. And historically, that was a big issue. And then once we got access to the 100% Medicare database and we get those data files and we're able to link that into AJR, now if you're over 65, we can track you no matter where you go. So we can get 100% linkage of those Medicare patients. Obviously for the private payers, it's still a little bit lower. As we now have been able to continue to follow this fixation issue, the trends are definitely getting stronger and stronger. We just reported this at the closed meeting, the Hip Society, and definitely we're seeing that correlation that maybe didn't reach statistical significance in this study is now pretty strongly correlated with fixation type, in particular, as you mentioned, in hemiarthroplasties. And it's really interesting if you look at the data from the annual report, and there's been numerous studies that have been published in the literature linking press fit fixation in hemis to early periprosthetic fractures. 
And despite what I think is an overwhelming amount of data, if you look across the country, right, even in patients that are 80 and 90, still over half, if not more of those patients are getting press fit stems in a hemiarthroplasty. I can tell you personally, from my experience, I cement 100% of all my hemiarthroplasties. I cement 100% of them. And then if I look at my elective total hip population, I still do a fair number of cemented stems. I can tell you that a female and typically a female over 70 and definitely over 75 gets a cemented stem in my practice virtually every time. And even if you look in the AJR report and some of the survivorship curves, it's pretty clear that in, in females, when they get older, 70, 75, that their survivorship curves are definitely better for cemented stems. Now, still, obviously, the majority of my practice is press fit stems, but I definitely have that niche of those patients. I would have no problem putting a cemented stem in a 55-year-old, in a 50-year-old, in a 60-year-old if I thought their bone quality was poor at all. So, so Dr. Springer, why do you think there is, I don't want to say a slow adoption, but for lack of a better word, I'm not that smart. Slow adoption yeah, yeah. Of, of uncemented. Are you, are you saying, yeah, to I'm not that smart or yeah, to the slow adoption? <laughs> All of the above. <laughs> so why such a slow adoption? And uh, this isn't you of, know, breaking of cemented stems, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. I kind of have three, you know, I think there's kind of three thoughts about that. One is that I think there still is, it's not being taught much in our residency programs, right? I mean, we have some fellows that come into our program every year that have maybe cemented three or four hip stems in their entire residency, right? So I think there's a little bit of, of a lost art associated with it. Number two, you know, I hate to admit this, but I think there is still, people don't like the extra time. I mean, let's face it, people, you know, people don't like the extra 12 to 15 minutes it takes to sit there and wait for cement to dry, so I think that is an issue. And thirdly, I think there is still somewhat of a concern and potentially a misconception if you look at the literature about bone cement implantation syndrome and the risk of sudden death with a cemented, with a cemented stem, right? And, and certainly we know there are patients that are at higher risk for that, particularly if they have pathologic femur fractures, things along those lines. But if you look at the true mortality. And actually, Jay Parvizi from your group published on this, looking at multiple different cohorts, really the risk of early mortality or you know, early death from cement implantation syndrome is about a tenth of a percent. And if you compare that to the risk of mortality from an early revision periprosthetic femur fracture, it's about 10 to 20 times higher, right? So the, your risk of dying if you have to have an early revision from the periprosthetic fracture is order magnitude higher than it is from dying from the risk of bone cement implantation syndrome. So I think it's that, I think it's time, and I think it's a little bit of a, of a lost technique. And you know, the other thing, Chad, and th this is in the registry as well, everyone on this group and everyone in the ag, we're all arthroplasty trained surgeons. So we're very, probably pretty comfortable doing it. We're used to doing hemiarthroplasties. But if you look out in the general community and you look at hemiarthroplasties and you look at the mean number of hemiarthroplasties that are done per year per surgeon, it's like two or three, right? And so you might be the hand guy that's on call this weekend that has a displaced femoral neck fracture, right? And you have to do a hemiarthroplasty. Chances are you're probably going to push that press fit stem in there rather than trying to fiddle around with the cement with the person on the weekend who maybe doesn't know how to mix it and things along those lines. So there's a, a lot of other factors that play into it. 
I think that kind of drive that phenomenon. One of the things that I would like to see in the future, if at all possible, is about STEM geometry. Are there STEM geometries that are going to be more forgiving than others? I haven't seen that quite yet. I don't know if that study exists, but that would be kind of an interesting follow-up to see if there's a press fit that is better than others. Yeah. No, so I th- Alberto Carli, I think, published that in BJJ a couple of years ago, Mark, and it breaks it down by STEM geometry type. And it is interesting. And it sounds like possible, Dr. Springer, in in AJR as well to look at what the U.S. trends could be. Yeah, we could definitely do that now because we have that kind of granular data on the type of stems that are used that are categorized. I think personally, if you're going to use a a press fit stem in a hemi, probably using a brooch only type of stem, like a fully HA coded stem or something along those lines, at least from some of the European data, potentially with a collar. There's some data that suggest that could lower the early risk if you have a collar. So a brooch only collared stem in some of the European data might suggest that that might be a little bit safer than kind of the old ream and brooch pounding out to the cortices in an 80-year-old female. It might be a little bit safer. Any thoughts on a prophylactic cable? If you're going to do a press fit stem on a well, something like that? <laughs> you know, I think from my perspective, if you're worried about putting a prophylactic <laughs> cable on, you might as well start mixing the cement. But if you <laughs> if you really, truly don't feel comfortable doing the cement, I don't think it's a bad option just put a cable around the cow car and hopefully you can prevent that. It's, as you often know, the intraoperative ones tend to be a little bit of an issue, but it's that missed cow car fracture, right? And then the patient goes out and two, three, five, seven days later, you get the old, oh, well, I was doing fine. And then I fell and broke and, you know, got a periprosthetic fracture. It's most likely those were probably intraoperative fractures that were missed. And when the patient weight, you know, had the weight bear, they, they propagated their fracture. So the next article we're going to discuss tonight is by uh, Etkin et al. And it is, what are the migration patterns for the United States primary total joint arthroplasty patients? It was from uh, clinical orthopedics and uh, related research in 2019. So at basically at five years uh, from their primary arthroplasty, more than 10% of Medicare patients were found to have migrated out of their county or out of their state. And this rate increased to about 18% after 10 years. Patients from the Midwest uh, were more likely to stay put than patients from the South and really more, more specifically Florida. Black patients, healthy patients, and males were also less likely to migrate as compared to other uh, patient populations. Patients who received their surgery at a larger urban hospital were more likely to migrate than patients from smaller rural hospitals. And really, one of the, the really big take-home point is close to 20% of patients leave the practice area uh, within about 10 years. And this would really be a best-case scenario in terms of loss to follow-up and emphasizes the importance of uh, recruiting additional hospitals to AJRR so we can actually track our patients. Real quickly, the strengths of the uh, study sheds more light on one of the largest weaknesses within the registry data itself in a way that hasn't really been elucidated yet. Certainly, this may have been done in other study registries. I'm unaware of of a migration pattern study from any of the other registries, but someone can correct me if I'm wrong. Limitations, it only includes Medicare data. And while that makes up somewhere between 45 and 60% of total joint patient population, depending on what study you believe, that's still a large number of patients that aren't able to be captured. And obviously, the migration patterns for younger folks may be different than older. We aren't really sure kind of how that all plays together. So in terms of discussion points, I, I think, again, the study really reinforces the need to get more hospitals involved with the AJRR in order to be able to make it a stronger database that we can actually track these patients uh, throughout, whether or not they're Medicare or not. And I, I think one of the interesting points to me in, in reading this is that this is a subtle plug for a JOA article that will be coming out in print sometime soon, but it looks at the fragility of arthroplasty studies 
And, you know, a lot of our randomized controlled trials that are published in JOA are quote unquote fragile studies, meaning that if you took one patient from the control group and, and added to the experimental with a different outcome, that would change from statistically significant to not. And when you're thinking about a lot of us using randomized controls trials to really determine our practice patterns and what we think works and what doesn't work, it's almost kind of concerning when you, when you think of it in that respect. And yet here we are saying that if you were to just do an institutional study, 20% of your patients are going to be somewhere else at 10 years follow-up, which, you know, I think now, especially as we operate on younger and younger individuals is not that long of a time for arthroplasty patients. I have a couple questions for you, Dr. Springer. Number one, when you started this project, if you had to estimate how many patients are really migrating out of their institution or out of their local area, what would you guess? What, what did you think this would be? Were you surprised by the results of the study? Or you're like, yeah, um, that's about what I thought. Yeah, it's a great question, Chad. And I think it was hard to predict. This is a really important study. I won't say from the registry. It's a really important study for the registry. For, you know, I think when we did this study, I want to say maybe the capture rate in the registry was somewhere around 20% or so of all total joints that were done. And as I mentioned before, now we're up to about 40, 45% of all total joints being done with 100% of Medicare patients. But I was surprised how continued to get worse the longer out that you followed these patients. And like, as you mentioned, you know, 20% unaccounted for by the time you get to 10 years, which in an arthroplasty world is, I think, midterm follow-up at this point. And the interesting thing is, is we started to look at this, you know, this just focused on primary joint replacements. But when you look at it for revisions, it's more. And when you look at it for infections, it's more. Right. And if you think about it, it probably makes sense because most of those patients that need revisions or have, have PJI are probably going to migrate to a different center, maybe a specialty center, you know, things like that. You have your total joint done in suburban Philadelphia, but if you get an infection or you need a revision, you're probably going to go into Rothman to have it done, right? You may go to a different county or something like that. So those numbers even get more eye-opening when you start looking at revisions and infections and things along those lines. You don't see this from international registries simply because with national mandates, they have 95% capture rate or greater of all their national registries because of mainly national healthcare systems and mandates to have to be able to put this data in registries. And I don't know if we'll ever get to the point that we have to mandate. I'd love to think we could without maybe using the word mandate that you have to report every joint that's done into the American Joint Replacement Registry. But the key is we need to get the private payers on board, right? We need for them to understand that there is quality in reporting data to the registry, there's safety in reporting data to the registry. They're going to want that data for their quality and their outcomes. And the best way to do that is to report it, is to report it into a registry. How can we help payers understand the importance of joining? Mm -hmm. Or is it something that's really out of our control? Well, I hope it's not out of our control. And it's definitely, you know, we've seen it in the last two or three years really take off. The interest from the private payers in wanting to be involved in, in registry and registry data, where in reality, probably five years ago, seven, eight years ago, an individual private insurer probably had a bigger individual database than what AJR had anyway, right? So they didn't, sure. they may not have necessarily seen the value in reporting into a national registry. And now as those numbers go up and we're past 2 million procedures, they start to see it. And that's why we're seeing them actually come to us and we're working with them on, on these things like, you know, total joint certifications and gold seals through Aetna and United and waiver of prior authorizations and things like that. These are all programs 
to ensure that private payer data is being put into AJRR. The last article we're going to discuss is called Early Results from the American Joint Replacement Registry, a Comparison with Other National Registries by Heckman et al. from the Journal of Arthroplasty in July of 2019. I love this study. Maybe I'm just a huge nerd, but I love just looking at the different practice patterns from other countries. What they basically did was using registry data from 2014 to 2016, they compared a variety of questions to registry data from Australia, New Zealand, UK, Norway, and Sweden. I'm not going to list every single thing that was in the study, but I highly recommend you look at it. A few points that I thought were interesting. One that goes back to the discussion we just had, the AJRR data showed the highest percentage of cementless femoral fixation at 96%. The next highest country was Australia at 63%. The lowest was Sweden at 21%. So it really does emphasize the difference in practice patterns around the world. Another thing I thought was interesting that in the AJRR data, 60% of femoral heads were size 36 versus in Norway and Sweden where size 32 was the most common. For knees, AJRR showed the lowest utilization of unicompartmental uh, knee arthroplasties at about 3% that had been steadily decreasing from 2014 to 2016 compared to New Zealand, the UK, where almost one in 10 of all knee arthroplasties were uh, unicompartmental. And in Norway, I believe it was 13%. Also interesting was that the AJRR showed the highest percentage of PS knees at 48% compared with other countries. In the other countries, the uh, CRs were the most common used uh, at 91% in Sweden. For patella resurfacing, 93% patellas resurfaced in the US versus 51% in Australia and 2 and 3% in um, Norway and Sweden. I have a suspicion that if we repeated this now, which I would love to see, that those numbers would be different. But again, the strength of the study was just it's super fun to compare how we do things around the world and things we take for granted as normal or standard in the U.S. are definitely not the case around the world. Some of the limitations they touched on in the discussion was that at that time, the submissions were mostly from teaching hospitals. And as Dr. Springer emphasized too, we need more diversity of submissions from different hospitals, different practice patterns to really take advantage of the diversity of data in the AJRR. And there are so many more questions that I would love to answer. And that, that's kind of my next question for you, Dr. Springer. What other burning questions would you have to compare uh, from all these different registries if you repeated the study now? So I'm like you, Anna. I thought this was just purely from a descriptive standpoint, a really fascinating study to look at where things are similar and where things are different. I think it'd be interesting to look at, and we do this in the annual reports, but again, it's kind of year to year to year, but to look at the trends over time, right? So you mentioned like we report the highest rates of PS knees. The number of PS knees in the US is now going down, right? And we're seeing more CR and more ultra congruent. You know, I think it'd be really interesting. The, the cemented stem fixation thing, every time I look at it, it's, it's amazing to me, 96%, you know, Sweden at 23%. And we are actually starting applicable to the article we saw previously. We actually start starting to see a creep up in cement and stem usage year to year. So I think those types of trends are going to be, you know, are going to be really interesting. I think tying it into cost and value, I think would be really interesting as well. Who is the best person to pressure to get involved in the AJRR? Because that's something that we didn't really talk about, but like, how do I get involved? How do I start yeah. talking to the hospital and putting pressure on them? Yeah, so I said, number one, you serve as a surgeon champion. I would go to your hospital administrator. And if there's someone there that's involved that reports data, that looks at or reports any data on quality, you know, either nationally within bundled payments, 
you know, to other private payers, I would have that person in the room as well. And I would use, for example, take the front matter of the annual report and look at a lot of those data reuse opportunities, you know, what we call the, you know, the joint commission seal of approval, all the work that's being done with the private payers and use that. And of course, anybody that want, if you just contact me, I can easily send you a slide deck as kind of a quote recruitment type of tool of what the benefits are of being involved in AJR. And now let's ask Dr. Springer some questions about his clinical practice. What is your approach for total hip? So I am still old school posterior approach total hip. Yeah, I think yeah. that's for multiple reasons. I learned it that way. I feel very comfortable doing it. I also think in, you know, we have 10 arthroplasty surgeons in our group and about we're split about half and half. The residents rotate through. And I think you need to know how to do two approaches to a hip very comfortably. Now, for me, that's posterior approach and anterior lateral because I never got comfortable doing direct anterior approach, but I'm sticking with my guns with the posterior approach. What kind of templating, when a patient comes in for a pre-op visit, what kind of templating films do you get? Do you ever use robotics in your practice, get a CT scan, stuff like that? Do you get seated and standing laterals? How do you approach your templating? That's like a hundred questions, Mark. Yeah, I know. That's all right. That's why it's the gauntlet. (laughs) So for hips, no robotics yet. They get a standing pelvis and a lateral. So I can see what their pelvis looks like standing. And I do inquire all them about back problems or back stiffness. If I have a concern, I do send them back and get a sit-stand film so I can look at their pelvic mobility. And if I'm concerned that they may be stiff, I may make adjustments to my version. If, I'm, if they have a fusion down to their sacrum, I'm typically doing a dual mobility in those patients. I don't use them routinely in the majority of my hips, but I will specifically in those situations. For knees, I'll tell you, we still get standing three foot long alignment films on all of our knees. To me, it's, I just like having that information in the OR. I'll get a free picture of the hip and every knee that I do to make sure I'm not missing something. Hardware above and below that I might otherwise um, have missed. And we are just starting to foray into the robotics world. We actually just got one this year at our surgery center not the hospital, our outpatient surgery center. And so just starting to kind of play with that technology a little bit. CR, PS, staring. So so I am predominantly a PS user. I will tell you, I'm also a very, um, I call myself a laggard as far as technology, as you just gathered, if we're just starting doing robotics. But I've also just started really in the last year, I was waiting for two and five year data on cementless total knees. Just, you know, didn't, because it had such, was so happy with my cemented knees. And I've been very specific in who I do cementless is. Typically, patients under 55, good bone quality. And I'll tell you, in those patients, and again, maybe it's just my being a little bit neurotic, I do a CRCS in those patients, only because am I a little bit worried that the slight increase in constraint with a PS in a cementless knee right off the bat could be problematic, purely theoretical. But again, I'm starting off very slow here. What has prevented your complete migration of CS versus a PS? For me, it was predominantly just predictability. You know, I've been doing, I've been doing PS knees for 15 years, a gap balance technique, and the, and the PS has been very predictable. What I have found, though, is honestly using that exact same technique and even taking the PCL but still doing a gap balanced knee, which again, we could have multiple other podcasts about gap balancing measured resection. I just say my spiel is that in my hands, it's just a little bit more predictable for me to do a gap balance knee than a measured resection knee. But I have found that I can get that same result, I think, in a a CRCS knee. What do you do for a wound closure, Dr. Springer? 
So I still do a running monocryl and dermabond for the predominance of our straightforward routine joint replacements. Some of the higher risk wounds, I'll still do nylons. Some of the higher risk wounds will use rare, we'll use, you know, incisional vac, vacuum assisted closure devices, but we're still predominantly running monocryls, dermabond and an occlusive dressing. And, and as I always say, in a lot of my talks I've given, I, always, I oftentimes say, it's not necessarily what you close with, it's who you close with, right? So, you know, I've had my same PA for 12 or 13 years that closes every single one of my wounds. And I think that's, that's as important as what he's closing with. How about uh, dental prophylaxis? Still doing it, still very conservative, still doing it lifelong. We've been trying to do this study with one of our dental groups here in town and in England, speaking of registries, where not only do they track every joint replacement that's done in the country, they also track every invasive dental procedure that's done in the country. And so the question is, can you link those together to see if there truly is an association or a causation between invasive dental procedures, right? And periprosthetic joint infection. So that's hopefully in the works. It's been in the works for about five years. So still, as of right now, still being conservative. I'm glad I can be too. <laughs> uh, kind of last question on uh, revisions, uh, specifically knees. Do you use cemented stems? Do you use press-fit stems? Do you change yeah. that, whether it's a revision for infection or whether it's an aseptic revision? Yeah, great question. So I am predominantly a short cemented stem with metaphyseal fixation meaning a metaphyseal cone or a sleeve if you like to use sleeves. But I have gone to, based on some biomechanical data and just the ease of use of a short cemented stem with a metaphyseal cone is my predominant mode of fixation in revisions, both septic and aseptic. I did go through a period of time where, you know, I was so worried about the failures of the two stages that I was putting press fit stems in people just in case I had to go back and, and take them out for some reason. Look, I think a well-done press fit stem is equivalent in equal outcomes. And I think that's been shown over and over again to a, to a cemented stem. It's all about technique and your indications for doing the two. But I've been very happy with short cemented stems with metaphyseal fixation, particularly on the tibial side. So I just want to thank you guys for having me tonight on the podcast. Really appreciate all the work that the Young Arthroplasty Group is, is doing. As I mentioned before, we really feel like the Young Arthroplasty Group is going to be the future of not only AUKUS, but AJRR. And to that end, we're trying to create a committee or in the process of creating a committee of young arthroplasty surgeons that can help us in AJR, be on committees, and potentially get into the leadership roles in the near future. So stay tuned for more information on that. In addition to that, at this year's uh, 2021 AUKUS annual meeting in Dallas in November, we're going to be holding a research course. We used to have one a while back, but we're re-energizing it. It's going to talk all about how you can do research if you're in an academic setting, if you're in a private practice setting. And we'll have a small section in there also dedicated to registry research and registry science as well. The course will be no charge. So I really want to make sure we get our good young group of young arthroplasty group surgeons within AUKUS to attend that research course because we really would value your input. And I think you'll walk away from that with a lot of great information about being able to do research. Thank you. Our sponsor for this month's episode, Big Data. And also thank you to Dr. Springer for joining us today. You've given us a lot to think about. We encourage uh, each of you to talk to your hospital about submitting cases to the AJRR. Make sure you visit the Young Arthroplasty Group website, aahks.org, links to the articles we discussed, as well as how to join the Young Arthroplasty Group and AUKUS, a great resource for arthroplasty surgeons. 
Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.